0: All right, this morning's study is entitled or subtitled, The Sons of Joseph. We read Psalm 41 and verses 50 through 52, and we learned there that Joseph now has two boys, and the, the, the study today will deal with that, but the significance of that and their names to us. This study is built upon two questions. Number one, which I will deal with directly, where is Joseph now? And number two, what do these two sons teach us? What can we learn through the birth of these two sons? Solomon said to his boy in the book of Proverbs, especially in chapters 1 through 3, he said the Bible is like a mind field. And it has precious gems, precious treasures that are buried in it. And he said they don't yield themselves up easily. That you have to, if someone told you you had uh, a couple of million dollars buried in your backyard, I imagine you would start digging. And I don't think you'd just dig 30 minutes and quit. I bet you'd go rent a machine and I bet you you'd be out there, and they said, "Well, where is Larry? It's three o'clock in the morning. He's out there digging in his backyard for that uh, that treasure they told him was back there." Well, we find treasures in God's Word everywhere, and they always point to the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember what I tell you here all the time—that this is a hymn book. H I M. It's about Him. It points to Him. It tells us things about law. We read things about Israel. We read things about the church. We read all kinds of things, even philosophical things and other types of things, but it all points to Christ. Where is Joseph now? Where is Joseph now? Well, he is free after 13 years. He was only 17 years old when he was sold into slavery. And now, as we learned last week, he is now 30 years old. At 17, he was only a shepherd boy, but now he is prime minister of Egypt. He was his father's favorite son at 17, but now he's the favorite of the king of Egypt. His father made him a coat of many colors when he was seventeen years old, or maybe earlier, but the Pharaoh has given him clothes fit for a king, vestures of fine linen, we read. He had no jewelry when he was seventeen, but now he has a gold chain around his neck and a gold ring of authority on the right finger of his right hand. He had no respect from anyone back in Canaan, not from his neighbors not even from his own brothers. But now his very presence is announced. Now a choir shouts aloud wherever he goes. Notice verse 43, chapter 41, verse 43. The Pharaoh took off his ring, verse 42, from his hand, put it upon Joseph's hand, arrayed him in vestures of fine linen, put a gold chain about his neck, made him ride in the second chariot, and they cried before him, Bow the knee, and they made him ruler over all the land of Egypt. When he was 17 years old, he was thrown in a pit by his brothers. But now he's not only not in a pit, he's been exalted above everyone except the Pharaoh. Only the Pharaoh. Look at verse 40. I want you to know that I can substantiate all of these things. Verse 40, Pharaoh says to Joseph, You shall be over my house, and according unto your word shall all my people be ruled only in the throne. Will I be greater than you? When he was seven years, 17 years old, his brothers in ridicule called him a dreamer. Well, behold, this dreamer comes because of the two dreams that he had. But now he's called zaphnath <laughs> the one who reveals secrets, the one who can interpret dreams, the one who is the savior of Egypt. That is also right here in chapter 41. You can read. Everything I'm telling you in chapter 41. If you look at verse 45, for example, Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zathnath-Payaniah. And then he gave him a wife who bore the two sons. When he was 17 years old, he had no mode of transportation. He had to walk wherever he went. But now he rides in a royal chariot. I told you about the young man whose dad wouldn't buy him a car, didn't I? He? he said, but uh, his 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 dad didn't want him to uh, get in trouble, and uh, his hair was a little long. and He and the boy said, "Well, Dad, Jesus had long hair." He said, "Yeah," and he walked everywhere he went too. <laughs> he walked everywhere he went. He said, "Well." Joseph no longer has to walk. He's riding in the second chariot. Verse 43, back in Canaan, he had no power. He had no authority to command anyone, but now no one, according to verse 44, no one among the thousands of Egypt can lift up a hand or a foot without Joseph's permission. His word meant nothing in Canaan when he was 17 years old. But now, according to his word, if you look at verse 40, all the great Egyptian family of the Pharaoh are ruled. Pharaoh said to Joseph, verse 40, Thou shalt be over my house, and according unto thy word shall all my people be ruled. He's had, he has nearly absolute power. Absolute power. When he was 17 years old, his family thought of him as a young and ignorant lad. But now all of Egypt, from the king down, revere him as a discreet and wise genius, a man in whom is the Spirit of God. Look at verse 38. Pharaoh said unto his servants, Can we find such a man as this, a man in whom the Spirit of God is? Pharaoh said unto Joseph, verse 39, For as much as God has showed you all of this, there's no one so discreet and wise as you are. He's looked upon now as a genius. But when he was 17, he was looked upon as a young, ignorant lad. Back in Canaan, his dad, Jacob, sent him out to tend the sheep. But now, according to verses 45 and 46, Pharaoh sends him out to prepare the nation for the coming famine. If you'll notice, in verse 45, it says Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. And then in verse 46, it says that he went out throughout all the land. Now the going out of verse 45 was to survey the land. But the going out of verse 46 was to strategize, to lay out, to put in place a plan, a plan for the coming years of famine using the years of plenty to pick out locations for the granaries, these buildings that would hold grain to determine how big they needed to be, and where they needed to be, and how many they needed to be. And so we take it up now with verse 47. And the seven plenteous years brought forth by the handfuls. And he gathered up, verse 48, he gathered up all the food of the seven years, which were in the land of Egypt, and he laid up the food in the cities, The food of the field, which was round about every city, laid he up also. Joseph began to build granaries in each city. And then he harvested all the fields surrounding that city. And this meant that the harvesters, the people who went out and harvested the grains and got in the corn, they didn't have to travel long distances to weigh what they took in from their crops, and to store them. It meant that the people of Egypt would have ready access to the grain that had been harvested when they needed. You see, Joseph knew, and he shared that with the Pharaoh, that we're going to have, everything's going to be good. Stock market's going to be up. Every time you buy a stock, you're going you're to have a growth stock, man. It's going to split twice in one year. I owned a stock one time, it split twice in one year. That's that's unheard of. And in the last 10, 15 years, not very many stocks have split, but I own one that did split about three years ago. So if you want to buy any stock, come see me. Other other than preach the word of God, I buy stocks. I'm just kidding. The Lord always has directed me in some of those things. uh, But this thing of Joseph, he knew. Suppose you knew for sure what was going to happen to the economy, what was going to happen to the stock market, what was going to happen to everything for the next 14 years. And that's what he knew. He knew that they were going to have seven years where everything's going up, and then that's going to be followed by seven years of great famine. And so he began to prepare, as he had told the Pharaoh, that he should be doing. And this is exactly what Walmart and Dollar General do today. You know what they do? They go into small communities, and they build a Dollar General out in Chapel Hill out here. I can't believe it. You know how many Dollar General stores there are on Chapel Hill? Three. Three in Chapel Hill, one at each end and one in the middle of the town. What are they doing? They're building those stores where they're convenient, So when people want something, they won't run over to Columbia or down in Lewisburg. They run right down there to their store. That's exactly what Joseph did. He built those granaries in specific places so that folks could bring their grains in during the seven years. And so that when they started selling this grain during the seven years of famine, it would be right there for them. And it says in verse 49, And Joseph gathered corn as the sand of the sea very much until he left numbering, for it was without number. Now, let me just make a brief comment on that. Most most likely, Joseph is gathering not everything, but mostly corn. Look at verse 49. Chapter 41, everything's going to be in chapter 41. Verse 49, Joseph gathered corn as the sand of the sea, very much until he left numbering, for it was without number. There was so much of it that they just quit trying to keep an account of it. And another thing you need to know is he's not gathering all the crops He's gathering a fifth part of it. A fifth is 20%. Look at verse 34. Let's go back to verse 34. And this is when he told Pharaoh what his dreams meant. Verse 34, let Pharaoh do this. Let him appoint officers over the land and take up the fifth part of the land of Egypt. That's 20%. The fifth part in the seven plenteous years. And let them gather, verse 35, all the food of those good years that come, and lay up corn under the hand of Pharaoh, and let them keep food in the cities. And that food, verse 36, shall be for store to the land against the seven years of famine, which shall be in the land of Egypt, that the land perish not through the famine. So he's doing exactly what he told Pharaoh needed to be Done. So the corn gathered over a period of the seven years of plenty was of such an immense quantity that there was no keeping up with it. And now we come to a most wonderful event in the life of Joseph. He becomes a father. He becomes a father. Let's read again, verse 50. And Joseph was born... Unto Joseph were born two sons, and they were born before the years of famine came, which Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah the priest of On, bare unto him. And he called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, or he says, God has made me forget all my toil and all my father's house, and the name of the second he called. Ephraim, or Ephraim, for God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. So Joseph became a father, the father of two sons. And let me point out something to you. I don't know which translation you have, but I usually study these verses to find out about the tense and the mood and all of that. And I found out from some of these Hebrew scholars Not only that his sons were born before the Great Famine, which we are plainly told here, but the word born, the word translated born, the Hebrew word salad, is singular. You say, well, what does that mean? It probably means that these two boys were twins. It probably means that Manasseh and Ephraim, the second born, were were twins. Now, Manasseh means forgetfulness, and Ephraim means fruitfulness. That's why we are told the reason behind these names in verses 51 and 52. He said, the Lord has made me forget all the toils of my father's house. He named him Manasseh. The Lord has blessed me and made me fruitful in the land of my affliction, and he named him Ephraim. The Lord has blessed Joseph with so much glory and honor and wealth and power that he's gotten over the toil and the treachery of Potiphar's house, the time in prison, and the betrayal of his brothers. So he named his firstborn son, get this now, he named him Amnesia. He named him amnesia. I'll tell you where I got that in just a moment. And although he was in what he calls, in verse 52, the land of my affliction, the land of my affliction, which is in Egypt. Thirteen years he's been in Egypt. Sold by his brothers, sold again by the uh, Amalekites, and then uh, sold to Potiphar, and then Potiphar's wife, uh, accuses him of something he's not guilty of, thrown in prison, been 13 years. So even though he's in what he called the land of my affliction, verse 52, as we have seen in these studies, the Lord has made him fruitful in every way. Joseph has been delivered from every affliction, he has been promoted to an unimaginable position of power, and he has been made a father. So he named his second son Ambrosia. First name is Amnesia, second son Ambrosia. Now I wish I could take credit for these names, but it didn't originate with me. I was looking over several different scholars and theologians and preachers and teachers as well as doing my own study. And I came across the old fellow that's still on the radio. Who would that be? J. Vernon McGee. J. Vernon McGee. And I thought, well, I'll use those two because they're easy to remember. So if you literally translated Manasseh, it could be translated amnesia, forgetfulness. And if you translated Ephraim, which means fruitfulness, we could translate that ambrosia. And I remembered a poem that I had, a saying that I had, and this is where it goes. For every falsehood that is said, for every teardrop that is shed, there is a reason. For every grief, for every trial, for every weary, lonely mile, there is a reason. For we will trust our God as we should, and we know that all will work for our good because there is a reason. I think Joseph would have liked that, because when he looked back over his life of the last 13 years, he's gone from bad to worse, but now he's free. Now he's the prime minister of Egypt. Now he has a position of power, and now he has two sons. He is a father. So the question in the remainder of our study this morning, very simple, is what can we learn from these two sons of Joseph, Manasseh and Ephraim, or Amnesia and Ambrosia? That's probably what you'll remember. We can learn, number one, we can learn how we should pass through this world. How should we pass through this world? By forgetting wrongs and praising the Lord for blessings. That's what those two boys say. One's called forgetfulness and one's called fruitfulness. One's amnesia and one's ambrosia. Consider Jacob. Jacob, as an example, Joseph's father. Jacob's mother sent him away from home when he was a young man until his brother Esau forgot all the wrong that Jacob did to him. I'm assuming that most of you are familiar with these Bible studies, uh, Bible stories, but Jacob had a brother named Esau. And Esau was the firstborn so he was supposed to get what we call the firstborn privileges but Jacob's mother wanted him to have them and so she tricked her husband her old husband who couldn't see she she made some venison that was just like Esau would make. Esau was an outdoorsman. Esau was an athletic guy. Esau is a guy that would be captain of the football team or captain of the baseball team or the basketball team. And and uh, Jacob was a, a, a nerd. He was a mama's boy. And he stayed at home. And his mother said, I want you to have these birthright blessings. And so when uh, old Isaac called in Esau and said, I'm getting very old, and I'm going to probably not be here much longer. I want you to go out and kill an animal and make me some of that venison stew like I like, and then I'm going to officially pass the birthright blessings to you. And while he went out, then his mother, who was also, of course, Jacob's mother, said to him, look, I want you to have that blessing. He said, Mother, if I go in and try to steal that blessing like that, from Esau, he said, uh, I'm going to get a curse. And she said, the curse will be on me. You just listen to me and do what I say. Now, I don't have time to get into all the story of Jacob and Esau. I taught it many years ago. But it is true that Esau had already given up his birthright. He gave it up when one day he came in from the field and he was worn out and, and uh, uh Jacob was fixing some lentil soup they call pottage. And you know how we are when we come in. We say, man, I'm just about half dead. Well, of course, you're not half dead. You're either alive or you're dead. And when you say you're starving to death, you're not starving to death. That's just an expression It means you're very hungry. So when Esau came in, he said, man, that lentil soup smells good. Give me some of that lentil soup. And Jacob said, well, sell me your birthright. See, Jacob was a spiritual man. He wanted that spiritual blessing. And Esau said, good grief. What does the birthright do to me when I'm about to starve to death? Okay, you can have it. Just give me some of that lentil soup. And he gave it to him. And then later, he wanted to get it back. But he couldn't get it back because he had already given it away. You say, well, nobody saw him. God saw him. God saw him when he gave it away. And so when his dad called him in there and said, go out and get me some venison and make me some of that soup that I may officially bless you, his dad did not know that he had already given that birthright away. And so while he was gone, the mother of these two boys, Jacob and Esau, she made some soup. She went into Esau's Closet and got some of his clothes and put his clothes on Jacob so he would smell like Esau. She took some fur or hair off of uh, an animal and put it on es- uh, on Jacob's hand so he would feel like Esau because the Bible said that uh, Esau was a hairy man, and it said, and you'll like this expression, it said that Jacob was a smooth man. <laughs> He was a smooth man. That's what the old King James Version says. So when he went in and his father said, how did you get this so quickly, my son? He said, who are you? He said, I'm Esau, your firstborn. We said, how did you get it so quickly? He said, the Lord thy God brought it to me. Now, I can't help but tell you something here. His father said, Come near, my son, and let me smell you. And he came near, and he said, so he, had, he had Esau's clothes on. And he said, oh, the smell of my son is like the field out there. He said, come a little closer. And he reached out and touched his hand. He wanted to, see, he wanted to feel the hair on his hands. Do you realize that when you go to God Almighty, you go to him, and he says, who are you? You say, I'm Jesus Christ, your only begotten son. Well, come near. Let me smell you, my son. Well, you smell like Jesus Christ. You are clothed in his righteousness. You have the robe of his righteousness on you. Everything that you have speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so God the Father accepts you because of his son. See, he went out and earned a righteousness, and he gives that righteousness to all who come to him through faith. They have no confidence in any other righteousness, not in themselves, not in anything they've done. And so when you come to God, you come as his only begotten son in whom he is well pleased. And if you're in him, he's well pleased with you. Make sense? So Jacob deceived his father and got that birthright blessing. As a result of that, his brother Esau said, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill him. He stole that blessing. Well, he didn't steal it. Esau had given it away. But that's what happened. So his his mother says to Isaac, the father, listen, I've heard that Esau is really upset and You know, Esau's going to marry one of these Gentile women, and I don't want Jacob marrying a Gentile woman. Send him away until his brother cools down a little bit. And so they sent Jacob away, and while he was gone, that's when he got two wives and two concubines and had 12 sons that were called the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay? So I'm just filling you in a little bit. So Jacob is an example. When he deceived his father... Because of his mother's instruction, did he get away with it? No. He suffered all kinds of things while he was away from home. He had an uncle, Laban, who used him and abused him and misused him. And Jacob said, he changed my wages ten times. Jacob was tried, but was Jacob blessed in spite Of his wrong? Well, listen to his prayer. If you want to turn to it, it's in Genesis chapter 32. But let me read it to you. This is Genesis 32, verses 9 and 10. This is when Jacob is returning back home to reacquaint himself with his brother Esau after about 20 years. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord once said to me, return to your country and to your kindred, and I will deal well with you. I'm not worthy of the least of all your mercies and of all the truth which you have showed unto me, your servant. For with my staff I crossed over the Jordan, but now I am become two bands. Let me translate that for you. When I went up to my Uncle Laban's country, as my mother told me to do, I had nothing but a staff when I passed over. I was poor. I was desolate. I was despised. But now when I come back, even though I have suffered greatly because of what I did, I have been blessed. And now I have servants. I have wives. I have children. I have sheep. I have cattle and more. I'm a wealthy man. How glad Jacob was that the Lord made Esau forget. You know the reason Jacob was afraid to go back home? He thought his brother Esau was still mad with him after 20 years. He thought he was going to kill him. But when he came down and met Esau, Esau got off his horse and ran up and hugged him and kissed him. He had made him forget. And in Jacob you can see the forgetfulness of Esau, and you can see the blessings of God in all of his trials. My friends, now listen to me here. Hope I'm not losing you. Listen to me. All of us have done wrong, and all of us have been done wrong. But what is that compared to the blessings? of our God and our Savior. Let me suggest that as you pass through this veil of tears that we call life, that you forget all the wrongs and bless the Lord for his blessings. Because nothing that has been done to you is worth mentioning in light of the eternal glory that you will inherit through Christ Jesus the Lord. And that's what I think these two boys say to us. One is forgetfulness, and the other one is fruitfulness. Now listen to Paul, the apostle. We think we've suffered. Listen to this. I've been in prison. I've been whipped. I've been near death often. Five times I was given 39 lashes by the Jews. Three times I was whipped by the Romans. Once I was stoned, I have been in three shipwrecks, and once I spent 24 hours in the water. In my travels, I have been in dangers from floods, from robbers, in danger from fellow Jews and from Gentiles. There have been dangers in the cities, dangers in the wilds, dangers in the high seas, dangers from false friends. There has been work and toil. Often I have gone without sleep. I have been hungry and thirsty. I have often been without enough food, shelter, or clothing. That's taken directly from 2 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 27. But now listen to what Paul says. I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Romans chapter 8 and verse 18. Let me make a suggestion to you that you forget everything but God. Forget everything but God. We've all done wrong and we've all been done wrong. Forget it and look at him who has blessed you in spite of all of these wrongs that have been done to you. Listen again to the testimony of the great apostle Paul. This is the one thing I do, he says, Philippians 3, verses 13 and 14. This is the one thing I do. I forget what is behind me. And I do my best to reach what is ahead. I run straight toward the goal which is before me in order to win the prize, which is the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let me suggest that you ask the Lord for a divine case of amnesia so that you can be thankful for the ambrosia. Once again, listen to David. Psalm 103, I bless the Lord, my soul, all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all of your diseases who redeems your life from destruction, who covers you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Bless the Lord, he said, forget these other things. Bless the Lord. Joseph's two boys can teach us how we should pass through this world. Forget the wrongs. And praise the Lord for the blessings. Here's the second lesson we can learn from Joseph's two sons. They can teach us how the Lord will forget our sins, but remember us. Joseph had to forget things in his past to enjoy things in his present. Amnesia, or Manasseh, was born before ambrosia. Now, nothing in the Bible is there by accident. The one named forgetfulness was born before the one named fruitfulness. That's there on purpose. And we're going to learn something from that. The son named forgetfulness came before the son named fruitfulness. He had to deal with the past before he could enjoy the present. He had to have a case of amnesia, get away and deal with the past, before he could enjoy the blessings of God on him in his present state. His firstborn son was used to make him forget his past while his second son enabled him to enjoy the present. Now, one of the things that we all struggle with, and I'm sure I'm hitting home here, one of the things we all struggle with is the past, especially the foolishness of our youth. Often, the guilt from the past robs us of the joy of the present. There are attitudes and there are actions whence the world and the flesh and the devil often cause us to remember, the purpose of which is to destroy our present and future enjoyment of the Lord's ambrosia, of the Lord's blessings. And I want you to understand this morning, if you don't understand anything else, I want you to understand that when it comes to our past, The Lord, our God, has himself a case of divine amnesia. Sounds incredible, doesn't it? It's not that God ever really forgets. It is simply that he has promised never to remember our sins. Never to bring them up again, ever. And this is not merely a matter of love. This is a matter of justice. If my sins have been paid for, if they have been put away as far as the east is from the west, if they have been drowned in the depths of the sea, never to be remembered against me, because the demands of his holy law against me have been satisfied, If I have served my prison sentence in Jesus Christ, it would be a matter of injustice to bring them up to me so as to hold me accountable to them. Justice cannot my God demand first at my bleeding surety's hand and then again at mine. In fact, in the biblical sense... Judicially speaking, that is with reference to the law, my sins, we have to be careful here, my sins no longer exist. God has forgotten them. Now think about this. If they do not exist in the mind of God, they do not exist anywhere. Oh, that's dangerous doctrine, Brother Sasser. It's not dangerous doctrine if God's done something for you. (laughs) If he's done something for you, you want to live for him. You hate yourself. You hate the flesh. You hate the world. You hate the devil. You want to live above sin, but you know that you can't. You fall often, but you go back to him and he forgives you. Why? Because they've been paid for in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you served your prison sentence in him. What about the foolishness of our youth? Listen to two passages. One of them I'll have to look up very quickly, Psalm 78. But the first one is in Isaiah 54. Isaiah 54. Fear not, for thou shalt not be ashamed, and neither be thou confounded, for thou shalt not be put to shame, for thou shalt forget the shame of thy youth. You forget the shame of your youth and will not remember the reproach that was on you, your widowhood, anymore. Isaiah 54 and verse 4. Isaiah 54 and verse 4. Now listen to these two verses. Psalm 79. I hope I have this right. In verse 8, David said, Oh, remember not against us our former iniquities. Let thy tender mercies speedily prevent, an old English word that means go before us. Let your tender mercies go before us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of thy name, and deliver us and purge away our sins for thy name's sake. David lived before the cross. And there were, there were afflictions that he had to bear that we don't because we have the gospel, the truth of the death of our Lord Jesus Christ as our substitute. If the promised ancient Israel, if the Lord promised ancient Israel, which was under the law, and they only had the blood of bulls and goats, if he promised them that the shame of their youth would be forgotten, and that was under law, don't you think that that will be the case under grace, which is underwritten in the blood of God's own Son? For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ, John 1. The shame of our youth is to be forgotten, because the Lord has forgotten it. If he's not going to bring it up, why should we? <laughs> if he does not remember our sins to hold them against us, why should we? You know, the 1 John 1, 9, would you like to turn over to that? I'm sure all of you know it. I could just quote it to you. 1 John 1, 9. Over in the New Testament, almost at the end of the New Testament, you have 1, Second, and Third John. Everybody probably knows this verse. I could, again, could just quote it to you, but here it is. Let me open it up a little bit for you. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, If we confess our sins, He is faithful, and He is just. It is a matter of justice. To forgive us, and by the way, that is in a tense that means to keep on forgiving us. And to cleanse us, to keep on cleansing us from all our unrighteousness. Now, I want you to listen to me just a moment. When it says, if we confess our sins, you go back and check this out. This is legal terminology. Now, listen to me. If the criminal comes before the judge, and he's killed 15 people, and all he says is, I'm sorry. That, that, that doesn't do it. That doesn't do it. You are never going to be sorry enough before God for your sins. You're never going to be sorry enough. Now listen to me. When it says confess our sins, this is language in the courtroom. It means to cite, C-I-T-E, to cite your sins, to name them. You don't go to God and say, oh, Lord, I have sinned. You go to God and you tell him what sins you've sinned. I have been a liar. I have been a thief. I have committed adultery. I have been covetous. I've wanted things that I shouldn't have wanted. You cite those specifically to God. You don't just say, oh, Lord, forgive me of my sins. That's why you shouldn't confess your sins to any man. They don't need to hear all that. (laughs) You you confess them to him. And if we confess our sins, it says he's faithful and he's just. Not just he loves you, but it is a matter of justice. The forgiveness of our sins is a matter of justice. Justice. And that first boy that was born named forgetfulness or amnesia speaks to us of the forgetfulness of God regarding our sin. When it comes to the judicial matter of our sin, they are no longer existent. We've done our prison time. They're over. They've gone away. So while we're here and we ask him to forgive us of our sins, those are the sins that are brought to mind, that are brought to your conscience, and every day when you fail. But the reason he's faithful and the reason he is just is because they've already been paid for. They've already been paid for. And I say again, if the Lord promised ancient Israel, I could show you lots of scriptures. Time will not allow it this morning. They were under the law. They only had the blood of bulls and goats. And we're told in the book of Hebrews that the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. And that's why God sent his son to take away our sin. And yet, though he has promised to forget our sins, he has promised never to forget us. Listen to this. Isaiah 49, I'll tell you where they are so you can look them up later. 49, verses 14 through 16. Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. And the Lord says, can a woman forget her sucking child, that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Listen to this. God says, yes, they may forget, but I will not forget you. Behold, I have graven you on the palms of my hands. I've written your name on the palm of my hand. Every time I lift up my hand, I see you and I see your name. I'll never forget you. Your walls are continually before me. My friends, there is a fountain Filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood. Lose all their guilty stain. Lose all their guilty stain. Lose all their guilty stain. And sin is plunged beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stain. The dying thief is an everlasting memorial to the testimony of the promise to forget our past and bless our present and our future. While he was dying on the cross, he called upon the name of the Lord, that dying thief did. And the Lord Jesus said, well, you hadn't worked enough. You hadn't prayed enough. Didn't see you at church worship. Didn't see you doing this and didn't do you that. No, he said, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said, verily I say unto you, today you will be with me in paradise. Stand with me. There's a second verse to this song. The dying thief rejoice to see That fountain in his day And there may I, though vile as he Wash all my sins away Wash all my sins away. Wash all my sins away. And there may I, though thy he wash all my sins away. Now I'm asking you, have you seen that fountain filled with blood drawn? From Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. You know why I like the name Emmanuel? That was my mother's maiden name, so I can't forget it. Probably came from a Jewish family in Italy somewhere, I guess, <laughs> because she was an Italian. Have you seen it? Lynn and I were in London many years ago, and we saw many of the graves of the old Puritans that were burned at the stake for believing the gospel. Nobody over here, nobody in this world even knows who they are anymore, but God knows who they are. And we visited the tomb of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who died in 1892. And Charles Haddon Spurgeon had his tomb, it's above ground, and he had it looking toward London. He had a a face of him, sketched out in the tomb. I think I've got a picture of it at home. And he's looking toward London because that's where his heart was. He preached all those years to the people of London and etched on the side of his tomb are these words. And you can sing it with me. Ere since by faith I saw the stream Thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme. and And shall be till I die. And shall be till I die. And shall be till I die. Redeeming love. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Manasseh and Ephraim, amnesia and ambrosia are messages to us, messengers to us. God has forgotten our sins but remembered us. This, my friends, is the means of enjoying the ambrosia while suffering from amnesia. May the Lord add his blessing on the teaching of his word. Our Father, we're thankful for these simple and yet profound lessons that we find in your word. Thank you for speaking to us through the two sons of Joseph who served you all the days of his his life, and he is memorialized in your holy word. I pray that you'll cause us to remember, to forget all of the things that have been done to us because of what you have done for us. Oh, thank you for the great salvation that we have in Christ Jesus our Lord that all of our sins, all of our stains are washed away in the blood of Emmanuel, God with us, who gave himself, that he might reconcile us unto thee. Our hearts are filled with your love and thrilled with rejoicing as we contemplate our great salvation. We look forward to seeing him who loved us and gave himself for us. Then we shall see him face to face. Then we shall know him even as also now we are known. We praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. I'm going to dismiss you with.